Hi, this is Esther, and you're listening to the Sometimes Always Book Club. We are reading Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. This is Chapter 9, The Darkness of Mere Being. Guess what my story's about. Urine. No. Damn it. I am here with Andrew. Hello. Katie. Hi. Zach. So, dude. Anne. What's up? And Bob. Hello. I love the way we all sit here and wait to see which way she's going this time. I'm first. I should like I should <laughs> randomize it next time. I was not I was not ready. I wasn't ready. My knees were weak. Zip. Arms spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome. What's that on your sweater? It's vomit already. <laughs> ah, it's more mom spaghetti. Chapter nine. All right. The darkness of mere being. The opening panel is a bottle of nostalgia perfume floating in the air, which again is nostalgic. Very nostalgic, and just one of those wonderful tie-ins where everything just goes together so I feel nicely. like with the way that it keeps getting called back within the chapter, it kind of reminds me of the photograph from chapter four with John. Oh, with the, Just yes, him and Janie. Graph. Him and Janie. <laughs> God damn it. I'm trying to make points here, Katie, that are making me sound smart. <laughs> you sound smart. You can continue. I'll allow it. <laughs> Motion passed. Now I've lost my train of thought, and that's all I can say. You know what I just realized while while uh, Andrew tries to get back on his train, and maybe I'm stupid for just realizing this, but the nostalgia, the N for nostalgia, is also the A V for Adrian Veidt. Ooh, bastard! Why are you kind giving us such hot takes so early on? Now we he have to live great, up to it. He has that's a great all marketing right team. Yeah. That's all it comes down to. And he has that's, a great marketing. That's all marketing. I've got. I've, I'm spent. It also also nostalgia always comes up whenever they go back in the past. Like it's just very yeah. conveniently mm-hmm. there. I I just it's now cute. let that uh, click in, and I feel like a more. Well, it keeps so. Adrian throughout <laughs> the entire narrative. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind his of fingerprints on everything. Sprinkle it in. This chapter opens where kind of where the last chapter left off but we're seeing it from Lori's perspective and we see the last moments she spends in Dan's apartment before John takes her away. Her vision starts to darken as Dan calls out to her and then goes completely black and then fades back in and she's standing on Mars with John, but unable to breathe because he has somehow overlooked the fact that she requires oxygen. He forgot. He admits it. He just fucking forgot. He forgot that she needs to breathe. Sometimes Admitting these things slip important. my mind. Like, oh, you humans. <laughs> humans in your breathing. I love her breathing noise, too, when he finally gives her oxygen again. <laughs> I, it's a close I, second to roar. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read it as just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say, if I was desperately trying to breathe in a planet with no oxygen, I don't think I'd be making very pretty sounds. 
I think in that outfit, she's fucking freezing, too. Yes, it, I actually looked up the temperature of Mars <laughs> because I was curious about that, and it's, like, negative 40. <laughs> so it I'm, seems like she was, like, literally four seconds away from death because just before she started to breathe, like, the color is so distorted. Yeah. Like, her, her outfit is now green, and yeah. he's purple, and there's, like, red dots in her vision. It's kind of a cool depiction of, mm-hmm. like, that whole thing. It's perfect with the dots and everything. It just gives a really good... It kind of just puts you in her mind for a minute. And speaking of her shoe falling off, there is a panel coming up where she's putting it back on, which I think is a cool detail. (laughs) Nice. He creates an air supply around her because... I love air supply. Because I wanted to make a joke, too, but I couldn't remember some songs for a hot second. Nobody can. It's air supply. (laughs) All out of love. I'm so lost without you. When she's finally able to breathe, uh, she throws up from being teleported, which is something that they mention in previous chapters that happens to her every single time she is teleported. So far on Mars, she's just not having a great time. <laughs> and John doesn't even fucking hold her hair for her while she pukes. Like, what the hell, man? I know. He's like, what's going on? What's your problem? Are you okay? I, <laughs> I feel like this is an interesting commentary on when people get reunited with exes that have been on their mind and how it's not, it's all it's cracked up to be. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be a bad time some of the time. Very good insight, Andrew. That's the new euphemism. I was hanging out with my ex the other day, and I'm not having a good time on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> she realizes she's on Mars. Finally, after all that. Well, it is confusing because it's fucking pink instead of red. That's true. Yes. Well, it's red from the outer space perspective, but maybe on the ground level it's pink. Are you an astrophysicist? Have you been to Mars? (laughs) I can't just say provocative shit, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I can't play devil's advocate around here. Nobody knows what it means. It's provocative. I'm saying controversial things here, <laughs> I should get, like, my, my fucking radio jockey voice. Yes. <laughs> some controversial shit. Mars is pink. Mars is Wake totally up. pink, yo. Wake up, people. Deal with what it. Kind of Wake up, sheeple. Yes, sheeple. Yes, right. <laughs> they discuss the way he experiences time and how it bothers her that he acts surprised or upset about things even when he knows what's going to happen, which is something that we've talked about before, that he acts surprised or just, you know, reacts in a weird way, even though he already says that he knows what's going to happen. He explains to her that everything is predetermined, even his reactions. And we get the awesome quote, we're all puppets, Lori. I'm just a puppet who can see the strings. I was a real big fan of, like, the follow-up from that, where it kind of plays into that, like, question of predetermination fate, where, you know, she's, like, trying to not play along. She's like oh, well, what happens if I just decide to stay here then? What are you going to do then? And then John walks away. And she's like, wait, what happens then? And then runs and after And then follows him. after him, yeah. <laughs> the way he experiences time and reacts to things he already knows is infuriating to Lori. He tells her that she's going to tell him about her and Dan, and she's surprised that he knows about that, but then he tells her that she hasn't told him yet. <laughs> it's, it's a great conversation. He asks her about her earliest memory, and she remembers being five years old and her parents arguing. We see snippets of the argument with Sally describing another man to her husband and how he was gentle to her. She also refers to Lori as my child when her husband says, our child. She has a memory of a snow globe with a little castle and watching the snow inside and wondering if time was slower inside because of the way the snow fell. I I think it's a nice parallel to Mars and to just a lot of things, the little 
world separated from the real world, and it's very symbolic. Slow the, time, kind of like maybe yeah. how John could in sometimes yes. perceive uh, the passage of time. The bubbles we live in. Yes. it's It means a lot of things, and I like that so many things in this story do that. So her parents catch her looking at the snow globe, and her dad yells at her, causing her to drop it. She says her dad always yelled at her and speculates it's because she wasn't his, and she believes that her real father is Hooded Justice. Lori discusses her issues with men, stemming back to the issues with the man who raised her, and she tells John that Dan is different. And John seems surprised to hear that she's with Dan and tells her that she was his only connection to humanity. You do what now? <laughs> You're sleeping with Dan? Oh my god. I mean, look at me. Like, <laughs> you you trade all this, this blue hunkiness <laughs> for that? John tells her that she was his only connection to humanity and now he doesn't have that anymore. It's almost like a tantrum How in some dare ways. She? Like a boyfriend <laughs> trying to, you know, make her feel guilty. Yeah. For, yeah. You're my only connection to humanity. What the hell? We were on a break. <laughs> <laughs> John tells her that Mars means more to him than Earth and takes her around the planet in his floating castle. <laughs> Dude, I'm not going to lie. That's my favorite Studio Ghibli. Yeah, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Manhattan's flying moving castle. I don't know. Yes. On Mars. I, I'm not going to lie. This the, the page, like that big spread right here, mm. looks like the hardest technical death metal album I've ever seen. <laughs> like, I would listen to that band. It's all like spears and red and fire and yeah it looks badass desolate red planet yes but how many bathrooms does it have <laughs> none none infinite i don't think zillow is gonna rank this very high <laughs> no bedrooms no bathrooms no kitchen but on mars no neighbors though no ac no <laughs> no gods no masters nope. <laughs> no religion right. imagine no lori argues that all the work that went into the world into each individual person should count for something and we flash back to teenage Lori working out and then walking in on Sally having drinks with Hollis Mason, Nelson Gardner, who is Captain Metropolis, and a few others. Hollis asks Lori if she's read his book, and Sally interrupts immediately, saying that Lori's too young. That's fair. Well, we know that there's stuff in the book about what happened between Sally and the comedian, but we don't know what else that means exactly mm. yet. Yeah. A man named Byron Lewis arrives at Sally's get-together and seems extremely confused as to where he is. Lori questions this, but Sally tells her he's fine and she'll explain later. He's, uh, what's he, his name that went crazy? Mothman. Mothman. Yeah, he's Mothman. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the one who... He loves lamps. ...was institutionalized and wasn't he rumored to be homosexual? No, it, that's uh, Nelson Gardner. <laughs> And Hooded Justice. Yeah. yeah. I can't keep track of who's I know. There's <laughs> too many characters in this damn book. Hooded Justice is... Everybody's a little gay. What did, wait, what is her name? Yes. <laughs> Hooded Justice is Sally's gay best friend. Yes, exactly. Back in the present, Lori asks <laughs> John... So gossip. Paint their nails. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you know what I heard? <laughs> what? I heard the comedian really likes you. <laughs> That's kind of dark <laughs> a little bit <laughs> i know <laughs> as i said it i was like oh shit <laughs> back in the present Lori asks john if her own life is worth saving john counters that mars has no life and it's just fine without it he says that it could have life but instead chose chaotic terrain 
story relates to and likens it to her mother eroding her childhood and trying to live through her. A Tijuana Bible girl? (laughs) (laughs) She remembers the failed crime busters meeting and we see some of it from her point of view. And she met Edward Blake afterward and he told her she looked like Sally. Sally catches them talking and gets extremely upset, forcing Lori into the car and telling Blake to stay away from her. Lori asks John if the lives of ordinary people move him more than a pile of rubble, and he says no. He tells her that their conversation ends in her crying, but he can't see the future on Earth except for many corpses. He also sees a vision of snow and a vision of killing someone he can't identify. Oh, because he's... Okay. So we have a little bit... (laughs) We have a little hint as to something that's to come. I love how that's all... It seems to be contradictory, but it all is actually true. Yeah. Yes. I just want to give a shout out to all the imagery involved in the, like, Mars stuff. Like, it's just so beautifully drawn. It's so Mm -hmm. pretty, dude. Yeah, Dave Gibbons is really on his A-game with this one. I I love the color. I love the contrast between Dr. Manhattan's even his word bubbles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just his skin the contrast of that against the pink orange of Mars is just makes a beautiful contrast and I really love the look of those panels I also love the, the continuing falling arc of the um, nostalgia bottle mm-hmm. yeah. it keeps getting lower and lower and it's yeah. used in uh, as the punctuation of a specific line of dialogue yeah. we're getting there and as, as it's, well, it's, now, it's happened fun, multiple times. We're, we're getting to the conclusion that nostalgia is. Yes, know. yes. John reminds Lori of a banquet in 1973 in Edward Blake's honor. She got drunk and confronted him about what he had done to Sally before throwing a drink in his face. And I really like the look of this, of the close-up of uh, Lori's face yelling at him and the close-up of his face reacting to her. Yeah. Because her face is so contorted, the way it's drawn, she's just pure anger, and it's very similar to the face, the expression we see on Janie Slater's face in an earlier chapter Mm. when she's yelling at John. I don't know if that's intentional or just the way Dave Gibbons draws, but I like that you can see just so much disgust and anger in her expression. I Mm -hmm. think it's very powerful. I'm willing to say with all the mirroring that goes out throughout the entire book, I'm I'm willing to go that's probably intentional. Yeah. I I also kind of love the comedian's face because it's just like, it's almost hurt. It's like only once. Like it was the only one time and it's just like, Mm -hmm. oh, 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 shit. Oh, shit. There's something else there. Mm -hmm. Right. I really like the frame where he's holding Lori's face. Yeah. It just shows like a lot of parallels between the two of them, like even the color of their of his suit and her dress. Mm-hmm. I I really love in that hair. in the hair, which I didn't realize until just now. Oh yeah. Back on Mars, Lori is upset that John can't see human life as being valuable. And they kind of they have a back and forth about this where she's trying to convince him and he's kind of just turning away from that. John tells her that her emotions are blinding her. Lori looks back at her memories and realizes through a series of quick flashes that she sort of pieces together that Edward Blake is actually her father and she is devastated and shocked to learn this. It's just so well done, I feel, where you have 
like the same lines kind of getting repeated over and over mm-hmm. again as she's like having that stuff echo in her head alongside those images and those images adding to the fuller picture of that mystery in her life and having all those kind of culminate in that realization. I just thought that was really well illustrated. I think it's a good twist too, because I, I don't like it when twists and plot points like that are laid out in a heavy handed way early on. Mm -hmm. And we do, if you, on the reread, obviously, you know, something is going on. I mean, even just on the first read, you know, something is going on, you know, there's some reason there's more to it than we're initially told but a lot of that can just be explained by what had happened between sally and edward blake rather than the fact that they had this terrible situation where he assaulted her and then something changed later and their relationship was different although still complicated and strange and we're never really given the full answer as to what happened and what they were to each other which is interesting to me but I also I kind of like ambiguity when you also have like this really complicated relationship with the comedian being a father in general because of him shooting the pregnant Vietnamese lady yeah oh yeah absolutely no that's I feel like that's visible in his in his expression when she's kind of going at him and laying it into him of like is that what you were saying before you tried to attack her and before you tried to rape her and you can see in his face a hurt expression but I I read a lot of mixed emotion in there where he's hearing this from a person that I'm assuming he is aware that this is his daughter saying this to him but then also knowing the complication of his relationship with her mother but then maybe his own life so maybe this is a moment where he's actually kind of reflecting on the person that he's been and seeing it back in his face and maybe just kind of like shit I was kind of shitty. Not that he ever, like, changes from it, because, like, that's not who he ends up being, and he kind of wants to... I think he's tried to change. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, because he, especially with, you know, the Vietnamese lady, I mean, he shoots her dead, Mm -hmm. just, like, straight in cold blood. Nope. Bam. And since then, his scars healed, so time has passed. He's had time to reflect on what it means to be a dad, and it doesn't mean shooting your mom in the face. I mean, that... Thank you, Katie. (laughs) Sometimes we all need to learn certain things that other people may be like, oh, you didn't realize that. (laughs) Well, the other thing, too, I want to point out, and this is never, I don't think, ever explicitly laid out. It's something that you can infer, try to dig deeper. But based on the birth date that we see on Edward Blake's tombstone at his funeral... And the date that the picture was taken, which we know is the day that he tried to assault Sally, he's only 16 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say that he's the youngest one. Yeah. I never realized and that. And when he sees Lori the first time, the scar isn't there. So I assume that he and Sally hadn't really discussed the relationship. And that's why Sally was so upset when she saw him talking to Lori in the beginning there. Mm-hmm. Like, just putting it in a timeline. Not saying that makes it okay that he's only 16, but I am saying he is yeah. only 16, so this is a long time ago, and this is a impulsive young man who is a superhero vigilante who, obviously, his brain is not finished developing, and he has not a great concept of right and wrong or consequences. He's like in those school videos that they show you of, like, the kid who doesn't know what rape is and yes. <laughs> what consent is. And, yes. like... <laughs> is punching them in the stomach consent? <laughs> Don't be like Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> 
So after Lori comes to this conclusion, it's also a great sequence with her making the realization and the bottle of perfume smashes and the castle smashes and the snow globe and the memory smashes and it's a very cool sequence. I'm not describing it great. World shattering. It's, you know, that's what it is. And she, her entire reality is shattered and well, her her nostalgia shatters. The yeah. mm-hmm. the building that you know represents the clocks and the and the time comes down. It basically yeah. brings her world to a standstill, destroys everything. Her understanding of everything as as it was. I like the picture too of her crying with John behind her and the blue mm-hmm. circle, like a bubble enclosing them. No, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was yeah, just drag. I thought you were trying to do like a really fucked up meow. I I saw a cat come in. I honestly only heard Crash Bandicoot. (laughs) (laughs) I I heard Crash Bandicoot falling down the down the hole. Like (laughs) John concludes that Lori is a thermodynamic miracle because she shouldn't exist and yet she does based on the sequence of events that led to her birth. Right. Well, yeah. Well, he, wait. So rape is now miracle. rape is now a thermodynamic miracle. That is not what led to her birth. Yeah, though. no, that's different times, guys. <laughs> they had what? sex a second time, and that was yes. the time she was. Well, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, they had sex another yeah. time. Well, that would have been it's the first so, time, right? Like, because it didn't actually happen. Well, I mean, no. they didn't have sex, but I mean, they right. actually had yeah, sex yeah, at yeah, a yeah, later actually, date. Yes, yeah, Which consensually. Is, yes, Which presumably. I think it was. I, I, I think Sally's uh, idea of consent is maybe a little wavy. It was the. 40s. <laughs> I didn't say no hard enough, so yeah. you know. Good lord, yeah, just I'm jumping ahead, but the next um, I know. little interlude thing I know exactly is the hardest what thing about. to read. It's, awful. Yeah. it's the hardest thing to read in this whole thing. The chapter ends with a quote from C.C. Young, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. I wanted to ask a question sure. where, um, so we, we kind of accidentally glossed over it, but like in that sequence where he's uh, talking with Lori about how the miracle of human life and like how many millions of circumstances lead to someone like her, for example, he says that he's changed his mind because throughout this whole debate or argument, he's been saying, I'm not going to go back to help Earth. And now he's like, I've, I've changed my mind. I'm going to go see what I can do to help out. When I was reading it, my first interpretation was that he was saying the stuff that he needed to to get that argument from Lori to then get him to the point where he could no. air quotes change his mind no the the conversation already happened he was just well that's what i'm saying it's like it it seems weird that he could actually change his mind you know like cuz he would know how the conversation's going to turn it's out like, so maybe he well, was much just like everything else he does it's just the way that it's supposed to go mm-hmm. so yeah. i yeah, he, he tells her that she's going to tell him she's sleeping with Dan, but then he's still surprised when she tells him. Yeah. So it's the same way. He, oh, man, he knows this it's is so happen. complex and hard to understand. Yeah. It's it's because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a con- concept of time that we just can't wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I got an idea, and it might sound dumb, but you know you're going to get purple from mixing red and blue, and then you just start with red, and you just keep adding blue, even though you know you're going to get purple, and then you're like, ah, oh, purple. <laughs> <laughs> just like that every time dude every time man whoa purple i keep expecting yellow but that shit ain't happening you broke Andrew. 
<laughs> Andrew is really trying to process that. He's just I've like, I've had very little nutrients today and coffee. Dude, and hell yeah! Like, She's been eating <laughs> snow caps and drinking coffee. Yes, <laughs> like, I need some of those snow caps. Join the club. I was at work today, and I was like, I'll eat at work. Didn't do that. Got home, started reading, had to read this chapter. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yeah, I won't eat when I get home. It's whatever. <laughs> and then literally the first thing I ate was we stopped at McDonald's and I've just been fueled on coffee and cigarettes all day. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, guys, really take care of yourselves. My, my brain no. just does not work right now. You've been drinking all those like brain fuel things. Fat water. D-H-A-T? No, I, there's like a gram of fat in there. Supposedly it's supposed to help your brain. I don't believe it. I just like the I taste of it. it. Is that like a kink thing where like a fat guy just sits in water and then you just drink the fat water? Fat water. That, that's, I would love to do that. Are you kidding me? It's like gamer girl bath water, but for yes. fat guys? Yeah! Go ahead, hey, kids. Zach. Drink the Kool-Aid, kids. Zach, it's time for a career change. You have to start your own cult so that people already okay. are into you. Uh, so actually, funny story. When I was in high school and they asked us what we wanted to do, I always said comedian, writer, or I wanted to start a cult. And you wanted to shoot pregnant Vietnamese ladies? Uh, (laughs) My, like, joke answer was to be a hooker, and, like, I haven't reached that point yet, but... Dude, there's still time. It's never too late. You can always get your dreams. It's age of sex work, dude. Yeah. My first answer was firefighter. Or a hooker. haven't done that. What do you do when you're mid-john and the alarm goes off? You gotta finish them real quick and get the fuck out of there. I know you bring bring 50 bucks, but I gotta go. (laughs) Bring them like you you can't find a sitter for your kid and you just... Like, all right, come on, help me fight this fire. So our interlude is Sally's newspaper clippings. There's a newspaper article introducing her to the world as Silk Spectre, written sort of like a Hollywood gossip column. I love the title there, The Villains Vie for Voluptuous Vigilante. Oh, God. Hold on, can I I do old Hollywood voice? Yes, please. Villains vie for voluptuous vigilante. (laughs) That is part one of two noticeable alliterations Mm. where goons are going gaga. (laughs) There's a lot lot of it then. I'm wrong. I was thinking about the shortest long underwear yet and becomes the first feisty female to join the fight against felons. Or felony, sorry. It shows a marketable side of vigilantes uh, discussing how criminals want to be arrested by Sally. (laughs) It's starting more crime. Yeah, there's a quote in there from, like, a, a criminal where he talks about how being brought in by Sally is way better than being brought in just by two cops. So with that point of view, she was actually making things worse by creating more crime. Then. She's definitely a sex symbol and uh, a brand, also. Mm-hmm. There's a gossip column that discusses Sally and hooded justice as a possible item. <laughs> and it's also written sort of in that Hollywood gossip column, like, are wedding bells in the future? <laughs> there's also a movie in the works about Sally but it eventually fell through as interest in the heroes started to wane. And there's like a review of it eventually where it's been downgraded to like a B movie. If not even a B movie, like a Z movie. I'm imagining like a, uh, a Barbarella type movie. Yeah. If that, if anybody gets that reference. Yes. It's actually a porno. Yeah. Like soft porn. Oh yes. Oh, the Mm -hmm. end result of the, yes. Yes. Like a, like a, not Barbarella. I don't know. Well, Well, that too a little bit. Yeah. Okay. The end. The well, then I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> research. That has a oh. machine that makes you orgasm to death. <laughs> it is, that is how I want to go. That's my favorite scene in the Princess the villain's, Bride. The villain's <laughs> name is Rod Donovan. 
Aww. if that ain't a porn name, yeah, I don't that's know what true. It is. So yes, it does. It becomes like a softcore porn. It starts off as like a biopic, and then by the end, it's just like this low-budget softcore porn. Yeah, the last line is great. Too awful even to be dignified with the term pornography. The only real act of sadism in this film lies in releasing it. The only masochism in watching it. (laughs) Two thumbs way down. Scathing. A letter from Captain Metropolis inviting Sally to join the Minutemen is enclosed. One of the clippings reveals that Sally's relationship with Hooded Justice was a front for his real relationship with Nelson Gardner, a.k.a. Captain Metropolis. Also known to his friends as Nellie, which I find cute. Aww. She also, she mentions uh, in one of the letters a proposal from Larry feels like a business deal, which I think it mainly was. And the final clipping is an interview with Sally from the 70s, where she discusses her regret at Silhouette being ousted from the group for being gay. And she says that Silhouette was not the only gay member of the Minutemen, but she's the only one that was outed and punished for it. She says she didn't like Silhouette, whose real name is Ursula, I think. But she feels guilty about what happened to her because she eventually was murdered. She also discusses her relationship with Edward Blake a bit and says she feels partially responsible for what happened to her and that it's more complicated than people think. Knowing what we know now, it's interesting and confusing to hear her discuss her blaming herself for what happened. Well, it makes you wonder at this point, now that we know what we know, if she's blaming herself or okaying the potential rape because... Later on, she did kind of fall for him and then had her daughter from that. So is she justifying the relationship, but only acknowledging the part that everybody knows about? It could be, because I do feel that there's a lot of guilt on the part of the character. I also feel like the relationship she has with Edward Blake is so complicated and so confusing in a lot of ways. And because we have the multiple timelines and because we're shown the the worst part of it first... And then we learn there's another side to it later. I don't know if it's possible to fully unpack that whole thing and, and understand it. Well, the three I, panels that they have of her facial expressions at the end of this, I feel fully encapture that. Where it's just awkward. There, there's a lot of confusion and awkwardness and uh, that expression of reflecting and kind of like maybe rethinking or recontextualizing everything in a way that maybe makes it best for her to reflect on even if it's not the truth necessarily yeah Yeah. well and i think a lot of times with with sexual assault people do blame themselves Mm -hmm. and feel guilty about it and i think knowing that she had some sort of consensual relationship with him later complicates that and probably makes her feel even more guilty because he's being painted to be this monster that she doesn't see him as anymore she's forgiven him and she knows that they had something that she doesn't want to share with the public so she's dealing with that on top of whatever feelings she has about the assault and also she's like a she knows she was a sex symbol she knows that like she knows she so she's like well if that was the case you know like of of course she dressed like it yeah Mm -hmm. it's like that kind of old adage and that's obviously trash but but was predominant at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And it makes sense with the know. context of the character, too, because she yeah. has very old-fashioned values in a lot of ways also. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, I had it coming, and it's like, well... Yeah. At the top <laughs> of the profile, popcorn. it says, an interview with a 40s glamour girl. I initially read it as steamier side. Is that a misprint, or is seamier a word that I don't know? Seamier is a word. Yeah. What does it mean? Like um, a dress. Uh, it means... Uh, <laughs> no, it, there's an nautical. A, 
no. Uh, she's talking about her time in the I movies. think it means, like, unsavory. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense, because I thought it said steamier side, and then, in, like, with the context yeah. of everything being discussed, I'm like, that is a gross lead. <laughs> <laughs> it means, like, uh, the darker side, the unsavory okay, side. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. But I, I, was, I was like, the gall of calling it the, yeah, steamier, the steamier side, side. when there's a thing about rape and, like, <laughs> gay people getting kicked out and, like... <laughs> murdered it's like what the fuck she also touches on the situation with Lori, mm-hmm. and that Lori complains about the career she's been pushed into but sally suspects that she secretly likes it which we know is kind of true it's a co- it's more complicated than that yeah. but she yeah. does Lori does feel some sort of comfort with among people like her i guess maybe not like her but other people who are vigilantes she feels like those are the only people who truly understand her. Even in like the earlier chapter when she goes to Dan, she says she's sad about it, but she says the only people I know are superheroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, so, there's, I think there's a comfort in that in, in um, a shared experience. Yes, mm-hmm. you may you meet a whole room of people, and you might have a lot in common with this person, but if you can't get to the meat of that. A lot of times that that icebreaker is those common experiences, and people do tend to group by that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I play Magic competitively, and I can step into any Magic store in the United States of America or any country, and immediately I have friends. Yeah. Like, immediately. Like, I can walk in and be like, oh, yeah, hey, that card. Like, oh, you're playing this deck. Like, I know exactly what you're playing. Like, yeah, I played this one. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, cool. Immediately. I can go to any room that those people are in because we share common interest. And I guess what I'm saying is if you stepped out of that store with that same person, you may find, I don't even like this fucking guy. Tons of times. (laughs) Tons of times, yeah. But you will be drawn together and you will continue to be together because of that shared experience. And I I think that's that's kind of what's going on here. It's like shared trauma, almost, in a way. Especially in this case, it's more shared Mm -hmm. trauma. By the way, let your geek flag fly. This is like a no judgment room. We're talking about a comic book. We're devoting multiple hours. Graphic novel. Every time I talk to someone, they're like like nerdier friends. They're always like, oh, oh, magic, huh? And I'm like, (laughs) it's like D&D got kind of normalized recently. You're being such a Dan right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, God, no. Nerd. It's it's my owl. (laughs) I do think this is an important chapter. I I, um, I love the char- both of the Silk Spectre characters mm-hmm. for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I love Lori because I she's just a very beautifully layered character. She's very complicated, um, but she's very real to me. And mm-hmm. as John said in a previous episode, she's a very relatable character in some ways, just based on her reactions to certain things and the way that she interacts with other characters. And she's just, what did he call her? He said that she's almost like a... Uh, the audience perspective. Yeah, she's kind of gives oh, yeah. the audience perspective and brings us into that world and lets us see it through her eyes. So I, I mean, think that's why I like her in a lot of ways. I mean, she like she was with uh, Dr. Manhattan for so long and she still reacts like, like, what the fuck? To even like <laughs> some of those like wild... Like, it's like, you think she'd seen it all, but she's still like reacts in a believable way. Well, like, that is, you know. I think that is believable, too, because, I mean, like, yeah. Bob and I have lived together for more than 10 years <laughs> and you're at this still like, point. what the fuck? Exactly. <laughs> All the time. Daily. <laughs> <laughs> Just... So, yeah, I can totally yeah. see that. Yeah. <laughs> you want to keep everything fresh. She, uh, uh, the Both uh, Silk Spectres are human lasagna, very layered. Absolutely. 
I was talking about the book with with my girlfriend, and I was like, it's really wild to think about the politics in this at the time. Like, they talk about gay people and gay relationships, and uh, lesbians against rape. Like, that was a thing, and I was just like, Jesus, man, this I would never guess this was in the eighties. Like, mm-hmm. I never would have guessed. And then I and then I literally stopped myself, and I was like. This is the same guy who wrote V for Vendetta. I yeah. mean, you know, completely, <laughs> yeah. like, anti-fascist. Well, actually, like, it's kind of... I, I think that's interesting, though. I think Bob and I might be the only people in this room who were yeah. alive in the 80s. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Correct. But, um, Tell us what the 80s were like. It's okay. Tell us about a Reagan... Uh, uh, the Reagan eras. <laughs> oh, man. One of my classmates was like, oh, I loved Reagan. <laughs> wow. <Yikes. laughs> well, you know what, though? I gotta be honest. At the time, we all did. Okay. We didn't know yeah. any better. It was yeah. there was almost like a a it was almost like a second coming of the the fifties where the government could do no wrong and and you know Reagan came in and and just kind of brought us back from the brink of of Carter and suddenly we, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the phrase here made America great again <laughs> in in in, in the eighties honestly yeah yeah, yeah. and and he was, was just good. this fucking hero and it wasn't until much later. That people realize what he put in place and the oh, seeds he planted, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, and, and it's not all negative and evil empire shit either. But yeah, we didn't see it at the time. I'll be perfectly honest, or at least yeah, I, mean, I was still young at the time too. But growing up and listening how you know he was talked about and, and how he was portrayed in the media and everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, in retrospect, I am very really clouded nice. by nostalgia in a lot yeah. of ways. So I, and I'm I'm a little younger than Bob. But not much. I said a little. <laughs> I was born in 1979, so I was a child in the 80s. But I, so my memories are very, very clouded with nostalgia. I look back and it's very, you know, all I can think see is like He-Man and... Nice. That's I, it. Yeah. Tell us and about yes. the, Just He-Man. <laughs> no, He-Man and Cabbage Patch Kids and like nice. Facts mm-hmm. of Life and things like that. And I don't think about the major issues that were going on because I was a kid and I wasn't really discussing those issues. I was hearing about them a little bit from adults or seeing a little bit of it on the news, but I was a kid and that just wasn't what I was interested in. Can we play We Didn't Start the Fire right now? But then I go back and I look at it through adult (laughs) eyes and I see that a lot of the issues were the same and a lot of the problems and a lot of the arguments and a lot of just the people in general were the same. It was just a different time, and my focus was completely different. We've come a long way and gotten nowhere. Well, yeah, that's well, kind of what it comes down to. It takes, like, what, 70 years for social change, something like that? Something yeah. like that. So, yeah, yeah we got a little bit of time left. Yep. It, it really reminds me of, like, back in the early 2010s when, like, I was a... I know, right? Hold on, When I was a hold wee on. lad. Just, just 10 years ago. Back when I was 30. Back when I was... <laughs> Sixteen, shitty little Zach uh, was uh, was on Tumblr a lot, and there was this really rampant '90s nostalgia from like a lot of yes. like, like millennials, and it's like, oh yeah, cool, fucking uh, PlayStation One, and only '90s right? kids will Play- remember this. Yeah, it, yeah, there was like this huge '90s kids blog, and it was it was wild, and like that's kind of. And now, as I look back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that all fucking sucked. Like, it was all kind of awful. Like, damn, there's some great movies from that time. Wow, our mutual friend that I can't name would hate you right now. Oh, yeah. No, I know he would absolutely punch me in the mouth <laughs> for saying that. Uh, as a caveat, uh, Swingers is a fantastic movie. That's fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so that does it for Chapter 9. We'll be back next time with Chapter 10. 
Say goodnight, everybody. Good night, everybody. Poo-poo. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>